one point. But how many of you know God, we still we believe in a God who still moves. Amen? We believe in a God who still heals. We believe in a God who still speaks, who still saves. Amen? Look at the person nearest to you and just tell them, God still saves. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning as we read from God's word? Beginning in verse 22. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You may be seated. That is the word of God. That is powerful when we really begin to unpack it and understand it. The title of the message today is Betrayed because the chapter theme of chapter 14 is betrayal. Judas is working on that betrayal even as we read this in the story. But the meal, what they are eating, is the last Passover. And so that's the title of the message today, the last Passover. As we read this and we, we look at this, and we've all heard probably everyone in here at some point has heard a sermon on communion or a teaching on communion. There are a dime a dozen. And communion can be many things, but it's one ultimate purpose that I would submit to you today. The ultimate purpose of communion it is a call to Christian unity. Communion is the ultimate call to Christian unity. I'll tell you what I mean by that as we go. But before we dive too deep into everything, we should acknowledge that there is a difference in how different denominations take communion. And we all do. If you're a Christian, if you're in a Christian church of any kind, whether it's Lutheran, whether it's Pentecostal, uh, Baptist, Methodist, everybody believes we should take communion. I was once in a, a different church. I won't say what denomination. I had taken communion uh, for years in my little Assembly of God church in Fairfield, Illinois. And we had this little strip of cracker. It wasn't even a full cracker because I guess we were cheap. And I would take this little piece of cracker and my cup, and that, I was so used to that. And I visited this other church, and you know how when you taste a certain thing for so long, anything different tastes wrong, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Like if, if mom has made garlic bread a certain way for 20 years, and you go to a restaurant and the garlic bread tastes different, it's, it, it's almost like it tastes wrong. I was taking communion at this church, and they didn't have a cracker even. They had this little wheat thin looking thing and it tasted disgusting. I didn't want to take communion at that church. But the fact is we're still taking communion because we're all part of the body of Christ. It is something that unites us and brings us together. Some will take a loaf of bread and have someone stand there while you peel a piece off and dip it in a cup and, and eat it from there. Some will have wafers. We do uh, soup crackers and, and little things of juice and, and it's different everywhere you go. If you grew up Catholic, the chances are you have a different view or at least were told or taught at one point a different view of communion. And the way you took it was, well, like I said, different. During the Reformation, this was one of the points of contention between some of the Reformers. The Catholics would take communion and they believed in what's called transubstantiation. I said it right the first time, so just write that down. We're going to move forward. 
Transubstantiation is where as you're eating the wafer, you are now chewing the body of Christ at some point. The literal flesh of Jesus. Okay? So there's a reason why the early church was often conf uh, confused or, or sometimes ridiculed and called cannibals because they were talking about eating the body. Well, the Catholic Church took this literally, and that's where they get this idea. But when the Reformation began to happen, Luther had some issues with that, but he didn't really know where or when to separate it. And so he was very vague in most of his writings. Now, most Lutherans today, as I understand it, believe in what's called uh, consubstantiation. And that is basically uh, where the body and the blood are somehow coexisting within the elements as they take communion. Uh, sometimes communion is called the Eucharist. We'll get to that as we go. But the story goes when the reformers were trying to hash this out, what direction were we going to go? Luther was on one side and everybody else was pretty much on the other, which that's kind of the way Luther goes if you've ever studied him. And at one point he got very upset with uh, a couple of them and he, he pounded his fist on the table and he said in Latin, hoc est corpus meum. And that's Latin for this is my body. And it's it, the way the story goes, John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli looked at him and said, yes, Martin. But Jesus also said, I am the door. And nobody thinks we're shaking his hand when we leave the room. So the, they understood, in fact, it's Zwingli and Calvin who gave us communion the way we take it today. We understand that it is symbolic of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. We don't think we're actually eating him. It is a metaphor. Regardless, the, the act of communion or the Lord's Supper, as it's sometimes called, or the Eucharist, we are performing a symbolic act that Christ commanded the church to perform, to complete. It's intended to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we are participating in a very small meal that proclaims the gospel of Christ, the one thing that unifies the church, that Christ died to save sinners. We are proclaiming that each time we take the bread and the juice. Communion is the ultimate call to Christian unity. And Christ breaks this down in our narrative as he tells us this. He breaks it down into three parts. He, he talks to us about his body. He talks to us about his blood. But then he tells us when we're taking this, there is a blessing to be had. And so that's how I've kind of divided the message up today, beginning in verse 22, if you want to read along with me. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Now we read this, we want to break it down. While they were eating, this is probably the Passover meal still, right? They're still eating. They're probably finishing up the roasted lamb. We talked about that last week. They're finishing up the meat. Some of you guys, you know the expression, we're just chewing the fat. Well, these guys were chewing the meat, all right? The meal is almost over. They're, they're finishing eating it. And Jesus stands up and he begins to make an announcement. Now, the, the Gospels do not clarify that's exactly when this happens, but it seems to track. It's all leading to that cup of blessing, that last cup of the Passover meal. But they're, they're still chewing the lamb, the meat, as this time, at this time. Now, Judas has probably also left. John's gospel is somewhat clear on this, even though John's gospel doesn't include the story. And in fact, if you're taking the kids' notes, you might want to notice this. The four books, the, 
the uh, Passover, or sorry, the, the Lord's Supper takes place in is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, which is kind of unique. The fourth gospel, John, does not include it, but John made it very clear Judas has left by this time. Now, when you read in Luke 22, verse 21, Jesus still has his hand on the table next to, Luke, or next to Judas, but again, we remember Luke writes in themes. He's not writing in chronological order. So we see this, but we understand Judas is not part of this conversation. Now, you're sitting there, you're probably saying, okay, pastor, we get it. You've kicked a dead horse. Uh, we, we understand. Why are you making such a big deal about this. Well, the truth is it matters because we watch these events unfold and Christ is making it very clear to those in the room that communion is not just for anybody. It is for the true church, his true disciples, his true followers. And so he takes some bread and this would have been the unleavened flat cakes that were traditionally eaten during the meal. And after a blessing, the Greek word there is uh, eulogesis. That's where we get the English word eulogy. It means uh, praise, blessing the food. It literally means, if you were to take that Greek word today, it means to speak well of. That's why we say eulogy. Because if someone dies, this is the last chance to speak well of them. Right? Right? We speak a eulogy at a funeral. Now, some of you have probably heard this story before, but there was a couple of outlaws, and, and one of them, they were brothers, and one of them died, and, and the, the main guy, he goes to the, the, the still living guy, he goes to the preacher, and he says, I don't care what you've read in the papers. I don't care what you know about my brother. At his funeral, you will call him a saint, or I'll shoot you dead too. So the preacher gets up that day at the funeral, and he's kind of nervous, and he goes, look, this man laying before us, he was a scoundrel. He was a robber, train robber. He was a bad man. He killed many people. He was a horrible uh, attendant of the saloons and the drinking and the women and all these things. But I'll tell you what, compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> that's a eulogy, right? He spoke well of him, right? And that's, that's what the word... That's kind of what the word means, to speak well, to give praise. Now, the traditional blessing for this meal goes something like this. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Now, when we read that, we understand that, we might see some similarities between communion and the Passover meal. We might also see some conflict there, some, some contrast. The Passover meal, when we truly understand it, it was a missional thing. It was missional. Anyone, anyone who hungered, the immigrant, the resident alien, anyone who wanted to truly be satisfied in the God of Israel, they could come and they could partake. That's beautiful. Ruth, if you've ever read the, the book of Ruth, she said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth was a Moabite woman. She said to her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Passover was a meal for people like Ruth. Ruth could enjoy that. Ruth could attach herself to an, a, an Israelite family and, and enjoy such a meal as a worship of Israel's God. And Christ makes it clear though, that this Lord's Supper, this communion for the disciple, is only exclusive to the disciple. But it's not limited to only those who are in attendance in that time. 
Should someone be hungry? Should someone want to come and eat of the bread of life? They were welcome. In John's gospel, Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He says a little later down the page, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, to eat of his body, what he's saying is to, to eat of his body is to join in his affliction. To say, hey, I'm, I'm with Christ. We proclaim his broken body as we eat the cracker. We proclaim his brokenness with, his, with the bread or whatever you have. Now, speaking of the bread, he breaks it. Now, when the disciples see him breaking bread, it's possible that their minds go to a time he broke bread and fish and fed 4,000 people, fed 5,000 people, two different situations, two different instances. And it's possible they're looking at this and, and he's beginning to pass it out. And it's possible that in their mind, they understand there's something significant about to happen. Because when Jesus breaks bread, people get fed. When Jesus breaks bread, there's a lesson to be had. And so he's passing this out. And he passes it out to each of them. This is not your normal Passover meal. Something is changing. Something is different here. And he doesn't just give them the bread. He commands them to take it. It's not a suggestion. For the disciple, it is not a suggestion. It is a command, an order. We call it an ordinance of the church. It's something we're instructed to do. He tells them that this bread is his body. And he's obviously, like we've already said, he's speaking metaphorically. And as we see, Jesus is instituting a new covenant with his people, with his disciples, with, the, with those who would come to him. The new covenant, uh, sacramental meal, it actually grows out of the old covenant. When Abraham ate with God, when Moses would confirm that covenant and eat with God. In fact, Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain with Aaron, with Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, and they see God in all his glory. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't, he doesn't annihilate them. He doesn't stretch out his hand against them. They behold his glory, and they eat and they drink, and it's confirming that Passover, that Passover promise, that covenant that he made with Abraham. The Passover was a powerful reminder that God keeps his promises. The promise he made with Israel, the promise he made with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we'll see that this is also a reminder of God saving Israel from Egypt. In the Passover, God liberated a whole nation, Israel, and he called the people of that nation his. That's important. That God calls these people his they're mine they're my chosen people in the lord's supper jesus establishes it is for those who receive him those whom he calls his they're his people and we cannot miss this in fact we have to stress the fact that he gives us his body which he calls bread you know it's the bread of affliction that's what it was in the passover meal the bread of affliction, a reminder of their time in Egypt. 
But Isaiah says this about Jesus. He says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds were healed. He bore these within his body. His body was broken. In the feast, the Passover, the unleavened bread itself, it symbolized this old life. And the separation from worldliness, from sin, from false religion, and a new life of holiness and godliness. Christ's broken body is the only way one can receive such things. It is only through his broken body that we are made right with God. Jesus tells the disciples later, he says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also li will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This passage doesn't entirely connect to communion, but it keeps that theme going. Communion hadn't been instituted yet, but the theme is found. To the outsider, this sounds horrible. This sounds like cannibalism, right? This sounds like something very difficult to understand and, and live in. Like I said, this is why Romans and those who don't understand it would often accuse the church of horrible things. So this fact that the disciples, actually, it's so hard, it's so difficult to understand. Many of his disciples abandon him. They leave him. He doesn't chase them down. He doesn't apologize he lets them go, though. Church, there's something to be said about that. He's given them a hard truth, but it's still the truth, and they leave. And when I believe God is the good shepherd, he chases down the one, he leaves the 99, but he goes after the one who was lost, not the one who left. There's something important in that. So what do we do with this? What do we say? All these, he looks around at the disciples who are left. He says, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? And they say, Lord, where else can we go? What Christ was saying is that once and for all, we have to believe and understand his cross. We have to understand his broken body, that this is necessary for eternal life. This is a hard teaching that we, that the Messiah, to the Jewish mindset that the Messiah was going to come and die, sacrifice himself, that's an unthinkable thing. That's why they leave. They couldn't fathom that ability, that, that, that was going to happen. And yet we read it, we understand that we must align ourselves with Christ in the breaking of his body, in partaking of the bread of life. And we say, like the Apostle Paul, we or I am crucified with Christ. I identify with that, with the broken body. We are no longer what we were. We are dead to sin. We are new creations. We're something else entirely. We are no longer what we weren't once were. We are the church. We are the body. We're the bride of Christ. We're his followers. And we say this. We proclaim this together when we take the bread. Like I said, communion is a unifying thing in the body of Christ. If we're not unified... Church, we shouldn't take communion. If you are not unified in the body of Christ, you should do yourself a favor and not take the elements this morning. Or pray until you are. The second thing he talks about is the blood, verse 23. 
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. When he had the cup, now again, I mentioned this last week, and Paul clarifies this is the the cup of blessing, the last cup, the third cup in the Passover meal. Paul says, it is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. That cup we take is still the cup of blessing. This is the final cup. This is the last cup of the Passover meal. And it's fitting that this is the cup that Christ shares and begins the institution of communion within his church, within his disciples. We continue to take the cup even today as we proclaim or wait until the Lord's return. It's with this cup that we signify the end of the Passover era because the cup of blessing has been fulfilled, hallelujah, in the cross of Christ, in the blood of Christ. And we see that as we move forward. We're no longer under the law. We're under the cross. And so Christ gives thanks. Now this is not the blessing that we saw earlier. Earlier we saw eulogesis, and and that is a praise, that's a blessing, this is not the same word here. It's actually the Greek word eukarastesis. Uh, I knew I was going to struggle with this. Eucharistesis. Eucharistesis. It's where we get the Greek. It's where we get the English word Eucharist, which is the Catholic term for communion. It simply means he's thankful. He's giving thanks. Now, there's a little bit of irony in that because in the future, the near future, Christ is going to weep as he asks for the cup to pass from him. Christ is going to weep. He's going to ask, Lord, take this from me. And yet he tells his disciples that we have an opportunity to be thankful for the cup, which will be what he drinks from. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And yet because he drank that cup, We are so very thankful as we take the cup. Because his blood was shed, we drink the juice as a symbol of that. He gives it to his disciples. No, he he doesn't offer it to them. Note that. He does not say, would you like a cup? He gives it to them. In fact, the word there uses a transfer of possession. And they all drink from it. And they all will drink from it. You understand. This is calling us back to a conversation Jesus had with John and James. They they wanted to be great in the kingdom. If you remember back in Mark chapter 10, they wanted a position of power. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking me. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to well, the cup that I drink, yeah, you're going to drink it too. And he was talking about martyrdom. He was talking about suffering for him. And in the same way, symbolically, when we drink the cup, we are proclaiming, Lord, I too am willing to suffer for you. I too am willing to lay down my life for you. As he laid down his life for us. Christ explains the symbolism as he continues. Verse 24, he said to him, this is, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, this is metaphorical. Jesus will also say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
It is meant to point us back to a passage in Isaiah about the Messiah that says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Well, what do you, you can't buy something that has no cost. It's given to you. Somebody's going to pay that price. And Christ is going to pay it. So that it's available to us. Salvation is free to us. But it costs us, our Savior's life. It costs his body it costs his blood. And it is in his blood the new covenant is born. This new promise, this new contract with his church. It actually recalls Moses' ratification of, of Israel's covenant with God on Mount Sinai. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Jeremiah, the prophet, he speaks of this new covenant. He prophesied that one day there would be this new promise made to God's people. And it wouldn't just be for Israel. It would be for all who would receive it. He said in Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, but I was a husband of them. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel in those days. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the, the new Israel, those who are grafted in, are a part of that. Paul talks about us being grafted in to the nation of Israel. It's for us if we are in Christ. And again, this is showing us God's sovereignty on display, his plan unfolding, his prophecies fulfilled in this little Passover meal. But notice what Christ says here at the end. Who is it poured out for? For everybody? Or the many? He says the many. It's poured out for the many. Not all. Many. Jesus is repeating himself from back in chapter 10. He said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Of course, this thought also ties us back to Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This idea of the many is very important. Now, some may try to connect this with the doctrine or the teaching of limited atonement and the truth is, if we are really honest about this, all of us believe in a limited atonement. We don't like that term. We don't like that. We want to think everybody is going to be saved, but that's universalism. Universalism means everybody avoids hell. And you cannot take that position from Scripture. You cannot support that. There is a place called hell for the sinner, for those who reject Christ, those who will not follow him. He died so that all have potential to be saved, that all can be saved. But Scripture is very clear, not all will be. He gave his life as a ransom for the many. His blood is poured out for the many. The many in the Old Testament often represents Israel, God's chosen people. Here in the New Testament, it is for, it is for God's people yet again. 
In other words, and to summarize, communion is not for the unbeliever, but for the many, for the church, for the believer, for the disciple, for those who will come to Christ. Taking the bread, we identify with his brokenness over sin, for our sin. Taking the cup, we identify with his suffering over sin, for our sin. And yet we should only take the bread and the cup if we understand this. And if our old life is truly gone, if we truly are made new in Christ, there's a blessing to be had. Verse 25 reads, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It's here that Paul actually adds that that iconic line that you've seen on tables in so many other churches, this do in remembrance of me. You know, Paul witnessed somehow through Christ this meal. You know how I know that? Because nobody corrects him when he writes the Corinthian church. Many of the disciples were still around when Paul sent this letter. Oh yeah, he did say that was probably their reaction. How does Paul know that? Because Paul was also discipled by Christ miraculously. We understand that. We know that. Paul is the only one who adds that addition, and he's never corrected for it by any of the others. John would have still been around much later, long after Paul, to say, hey, no, that didn't, that's not right. But Paul sees it. Paul confirms it. And so that's why he includes it in the letter to the Corinthian church. In the gospel, Jesus' focus is for the disciples to pay attention to the future on what is to come. He says, truly I say to you, now when Jesus says this, we all know truth is about to follow. There's something important quickly. The teaching is coming. Truth is coming. We better pay attention to what's he say. He says that he'll never again drink with them in this way. That this is the last Passover. He would not have this kind of meal ever again. Now you can look at Leonardo da Vinci's painting and say that looks like a lot of fun, that looks great, but, but this is truly the last supper that he will have with his disciples. He makes that very clear. He will not be drinking from the fruit of the vine. Now some might point out Jesus does eat with the disciples one more time. He does in the book of John. He, has, he actually cooks them breakfast, but it's nothing like this. This is Passover. I want you to focus on this and notice this. He won't have any more until he drinks it new. He won't have any more wine until he drinks it new. Why does he say new? That's an interesting word choice. Why would he say that? The last chapter pointed us to it, Mark 13. This is a time when all things will be made new. That's the blessing right there. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21.5 Write, for these words are faithful and they're true. New heaven, new earth is coming. A new celebration, a marriage supper for the Lamb, the heavenly feast that all believers will take part in. And it's all for the believer, just like communion. Where does he say he drinks it? In the kingdom of God. And this is the only time in Mark's gospel Jesus speaks of being in the kingdom. Earlier he preached the kingdom of God as a hand. But he says at that point he's going to be in the kingdom. Some of you might be sitting there and saying, well, hey, wait a second. What's, what's that mean? Well, there's coming a day where his kingdom is established permanently. 
You might say, well, I thought I was in the kingdom. Well, we are in the kingdom. From the moment we are born again to the moment we are with Christ for eternity, we are in the kingdom. But the full reality of the kingdom is also yet to come. He makes that very clear in Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In saying this, what Christ Telling his disciples, though they're not going to understand it right away, what he's telling them and what we should understand is his death is not final. His body's going to be broken. His blood's going to be poured out. Uh, poured out. You're going you're to eat the bread. You're going to drink the cup to symbolize that. But that's not the end. He's coming again. He's going to have this drink again in the new kingdom. He's going to, there's something, there's a powerful blessing waiting on us not all in christ will see death that is the blessing but all in christ will be with him for eternity and when we worship him together communion is a reminder of that actually communion is a powerful reminder of our unity and of our worship of him no matter our differences we are united in christ we are united through the acts of communion. Now quickly, if you will, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to end with just a few points, minor observations you might say, but things the Holy Spirit adds to this through the Apostle Paul, things that need to be covered. And I'm not going to break everything down. You're welcome. We would be here till Tuesday. <laughs> but there are some things we need to pick up that Paul has, has given us. Paul also picks up on this eschatological theme of communion. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Communion unifies us in the action itself, but also in our hope for the Lord's return. The Christian, when we take communion, it's a solemn act. It's an important act. It's a serious act. But it's a hopeful act above all things. Because someday I'm not eating a bread, a cracker and juice. Someday I'm in the presence of the bread of life. And I'm going to sup with him. That's what we have to look forward to. When you take communion, it's not a depressing thing. Oh, I've got to eat this cracker. I've got to wait till the pastor finishes talking so I can drink this juice. No. It's a joyous thing. I'm going to be in the presence of my king someday. And I get to eat with him. Hallelujah. And not only that, if you're in Christ, you get to come too. It's not, I'm not going to eat all the food. Right? We get to eat it together. Communion is for the believer, but the believer, what Paul is telling us is that the believer must be careful in how they take this because it is a righteous act. I said it's a solemn act. It is. He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, to take it in an unworthy manner, you might say, well, what's that mean? That's if you take it in a ritualistic manner. You just do it because it's there. Well, I didn't want to feel left out on Sunday, so I took the, I took the cracker, I took the cup, it's available, so it's just something I'm supposed to do. You don't know its worth. You don't know 
what it's really about. Or so maybe you take it indifferently. Oh, it's just a cracker, right? No, it's much more than that. Taking it with an unrepentant heart, with a spirit of bitterness or having an ungodly attitude, be it against a brother, a sister, maybe the pastor, or whatever's waiting on you after church. If you're harboring this in your heart, do not take communion until you've released that, until you've let go of that, until the Lord has dealt with that. Or you're going to be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, which is what we see. If you take communion in any kind of any kind of unworthy manner, you are guilty of dishonoring not only the ceremony and not only the elements on the table, but more than that, you are dishonoring Christ. You're dishonoring his body, his blood, and his sacrifice. Verse 28 reads, But a man must test himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, how do we examine ourselves? Well, we have to be honest with ourselves and settle some accounts, don't we? I think of Achan in the book of Joshua. He had sin in his life. He had secret sin he'd hidden in his camp. His family knew about it, and maybe he even felt bad about it, but he didn't repent. He didn't take it to Joshua until it was too late, and it cost the nation. It cost them a great defeat. We have to be honest with ourselves about our sin. And church, I'm going to tell you right now, pride is a very, very deadly sin. It's the one that says, I'm not the one with the problem. They've got the problem. It's very quick to say that. And if that's you, if you're here and you're saying, well, I don't have that kind of sin in my life. Oh, I beg to differ. You're just in denial. You're hardening your heart so the Holy Spirit doesn't deal with you. Well, then how do I deal with it? Well, forgive others first. And then ask for forgiveness. Heard someone say it like this. Repent. Repent and cry out to the Lord as if your soul hangs over the maw of hell itself. Go and sin no more. Stop practicing what you know is a sin. If you know it is something that separates you from the Lord, if you know this is something that hinders your walk, the dog has to stop returning to its vomit at some point. It doesn't just hinder you, it hinders the church. Verses 29 through 31 read, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For, the reason, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Church, I'm going to be honest with you. If you struggle with a sin, if you fight with it, if you say, I don't like that I do this, I hate that I do this, and I need to stop, and I want to stop, and you repent, and you seek help, that's fine. Take, feel free to take communion. You're wrestling, you're struggling. But if you are submitting to your sin, you don't need to take communion today. You need to pump the brakes. You need to spend some time in prayer. Because the Holy Spirit's conviction hasn't really got to your heart yet. I want to tell you something. You might feel bad about your sin, but if you don't repent of it and turn away from it, you're just as lost as anybody who stayed home and slept in and did whatever they wanted to today. You know, Judas felt remorse, but Judas didn't repent. 
there is a huge difference. Taking communion in an unworthy manner, church, I'm going to tell you, it divides a church. It cuts you away from the body because you're not taking it in unity with your fellow brothers and sisters. When the event itself is meant to unify us under the banner of the gospel and we're taking it in bitterness, we're taking it harboring sin, we're taking it harboring a bad attitude, we are hurting ourselves. You're not taking a cracker and a cup, you're drinking poison and waiting on other people to die. And that's a dangerous game to play. Not only that, Paul's very clear, there is judgment upon those who do that. Now I'm going to move to close. Before we do, I want to remind you this morning, we began looking at the Reformers. They were great men. I, I talk about these men quite a bit, especially in the month of October. They were great men who did a lot of great things, but they got some things wrong too. But at the end of the day, they believed that the right relationship with God began in understanding his word and understanding his scriptures. I think we'd agree with them on that. One of the war cries of the Reformation was the Latin phrase, post tenebris lux. It meant after the darkness, light. Their intent was the word of God had been kept in darkness by the Catholic Church for so long. It had been kept in Latin, and most of the Catholic priests couldn't even speak Latin. And so people who only, only people who understood it, only people who could read that dead language and go to that, they were the only ones who had access to God's word. And the reformers said, no, we need it available to everybody. The whole world should have a chance to hear God's word. Communion is not like that. Communion is not for everyone. It's for those who have received the word and stepped out of their own darkness into the light of Christ. It's not even for every Christian. Like I said this morning, Paul makes it very clear. It's for the Christian who has had the Holy Spirit search their heart, who's confessed their sins, who's repented. It's only for them that they can eat the cracker and, and take the juice with a pure heart. So before taking the elements this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, for, come back to the front and, and play. Before we take the elements this morning, we're going to spend some time in worship. And I'm going to uncover the, the plates and everything here at the front, and you're welcome to join us whenever you're ready. But take some time. Don't just sing the song and come forward and grab the elements. Make sure you've taken some time. Holy Spirit, convict me. Search my heart. Judge yourself rightly, as Paul says. And when you're ready... Take the communion in a worthy manner. Think of Achan. Think of what his sin cost him. His life, his family. Church communion is also an act of spiritual warfare. And if you're doing it in the wrong attitude, with the wrong motives, you, you are better off not taking it. So will you stand this morning as we worship together and we <coughs> move forward? His love is high.